This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's most trusted energy providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au. I think they were barracking for the story. I think the Herald Sun was so, so, so anti-Daniel Andrews and anti-the ALP. They were going so far one way that maybe all the other media thought, well, we've got to cover these stories, we've got to follow these stories, we're going to look like we're sticking up for the Premier if we don't follow these stories. Who's defining the editorial policy? Well, definitely oh, the editors. Are they second-guessing their bosses? Is their heart really in this? Do they really believe that this should be their mission? David Jones, they're charging. Oh, you actually have to pay to sit with Sandra. Haven't they seen Miracle on 34th Street? Not good enough. We were high-fiving. We could hardly talk for the first three minutes. As you chomped your way through. Well, I was a bit of a show-off. I did keep seeking compliments. I said, how good is this? The star of the show is definitely, definitely the landscape, this beautiful river. So you're watching a romance? I've done four series. Oh, four like, series or four episodes? Four series. The footy season ends and where do we find Caro? Sitting on the sofa. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome everybody to episode 246 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. It is the last day of spring as I sit here, Corrie Perkin, with you to record our podcast. How are you going? I'm well, thanks, Caro. And unusually for Melbourne, it's not raining, potties. Oh, it's been beautiful the last few days. We've just had a very invigorating walk with your dogs, but not mine. And we're both um, raring to go. You've got a fabulous recipe that you promised me you were going to cook over the weekend as you watch the Victorian state election. I have not made it to the movies, but I've got well, I've got something that has had me absolutely addicted on Netflix and you've got some wonderful Christmas presents as part of your book sec- section today. Gardening books. Gardening book, A couple of gardening books, well worth mentioning, Caro. And um, we have an event coming up and I wondered whether we can throw to Miss Jane to tell us all about it. Uh, it's so good, ladies, that we've got some bookings already. We are inviting you to join us on Wednesday, December 14th for a live podcast record. So basically we're throwing open the behind-the-scenes area of the podcast. We're going to let you uh, come on in, have morning tea. We're going to record a podcast in our big fancy studios so you can watch how Cara and Corrie and I do the show and then hang out. A few questions. Um, and all you have to do is book via the link in our show notes, which is just the description to this episode, or email me if you have any issues. Feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. And of course, it's thanks to Red Energy. It is, Jane. And we'll all be wearing our lovely summer frocks that day because I know it's going to be a beautiful day like the one you're wearing today, I Jane. To, I can't wait to see Craig Hutchison's lovely frock. <laughs> Anna from the Op Shop is going to call in. Might even get a family member of my own to call in as well. And speaking of Anna from the Op Shop, for those who are starting to think about Christmas lunch or dinner or Christmas Eve or whatever, Anna's turkey brine recipe will be mentioned at the aforementioned um, morning tea. But if you want to go back and have a listen now, episode 64. Corrie, 64, that was almost 200 episodes ago. (laughs) Anna stunned us with her turkey brine recipe that I've been using ever since. Yeah, so if well, you want to have a listen, that's where you'll find it. <laughs> oh, well, first of all, this podcast has been, uh, you know, we'll be talking about this turkey brine recipe when we're 90. I hope so. Wouldn't that be great? But um, it has been one of the most popular and most sought after 
recipes. And in fact, I don't know about you, Caro, but I can be at a social event leading toward December each year and people will say to me, now, you had Anna on and she talked about, oh, yeah, the turkey brine recipe. Yeah, okay, you know. <laughs> I'll put the recipe in the show notes as well if you just want to quickly look at it. Um, um, thank you, Jane. A bit of correspondence, Kathy, uh, Kelly J via Instagram. Um, just mentioned about Jennifer Eel. We did mention that she had been in Pride and Prejudice and obviously spoke with a British accent then because... She's an American actor. She was playing Lizzie Bennett, so clearly she had to be British. Um, Ruth Hobson, who we love, has um, said hello to the three of us, you, me and Miss Jane. She just talks about Bad Sisters, which I think we have actually already reviewed on the show. You're right, Ruth. It is an absolutely crackerjack of a show. And she wants the 90-degree eye fillet recipe of Joe's that we've talked about in the past. Oh, what that, episode was that? Well, I think Joe's going to call in and see us at uh, aforementioned morning tea because she's bringing the chicken sandwiches. So she might share it again with us then. She might. And, Corrie, we also heard from Simon DePaulo, a Hawthorne member. DePauli. DePauli, sorry. Yes, and he was uh, he was listening to our uh, podcast actually on a flight to Perth, which is always an, an interesting way of, I think it's great. It makes um, air travel pass quicker if you download before you jump on the plane. And he was talking about our discussion last week about Hawthorne and all sorts of board matters, uh, presidencies, annual general meetings and also the Dingley facilities. Simon, thank you very much for your thoughtful email. There's a lot here to unpack. Carol and I have discussed it, but we really appreciate you uh, spending the time to give us some, give us that sort of background. We appreciate it. Carol, oh, I see. His name's spelt differently on my show oh, notes sorry. to his email. <laughs> I didn't mispronounce your name, Simon. I'm sorry. Um, now, listen, um, Simon, yeah, thanks for your thoughts. I think it's been an absolute mess at Hawthorne and I'm convinced that Andy Gowers and the Hawks for Change crew are going to get up. It was so fascinating, Corrie. We're going to talk now about the Victorian state election briefly. And um, watching Jeff Kennett on Saturday night on Channel 7, I wonder if he'd had a – I'm not sure if he'd had a glass of scotch or not. I know that sometimes he has a scotch during the election coverage. But I just thought – he was representative of the Liberal Party. He's also representing, really, the Hawthorne, the Hawthorne election, even though he's not standing. His nominated successor, Nankerville, is. And I think people are going to vote against Jeff Kennett. Well, I, I wondered about the relevancy of Jeff Kennett the other night too. Although, you know me, I'm a, a, an ABC Anthony Green kind of girl, so I was pretty hooked from 6pm to that. Uh, me too, but I was but flicking. I, yeah, I flicking. did because I actually found Steve Brax another former Premier, I found his insight really interesting. I think he was pretty fair and balanced, to be honest. Uh, Jeff was typical Jeff, uh, very emotional, passionate, uh, a little bit disparaging in a, in a, of certain things that happened. Um, when, when the Greens, when they showed footage of the Greens member, uh, the Greens uh, leader, whose name escapes me, sorry, Caro, at one stage they went to her and you could hear, because Jeff still had his audio on, he groaned like, oh, like, and I thought, Jeff, really, somebody first of all should be turning your audio off, but seriously, when you're on national television service, you just don't make audible noises like that. Well, he, he had no answers at the end. You know, they said, where to now for the Liberal Party, who clearly have suffered a crushing defeat. He had no answers and he admitted that. And Steve Brax, you know, made the point that has been reinforced everywhere, you know, in the New Daily, in The Guardian, on Media Watch, that um, there were 159 negative articles during the campaign about Daniel Andrews and his party. In and the Murdoch media? In the Murdoch media. Um, I mean, the age was pretty negative, and I think that whole group think 
situation is, is quite real. Um, dis- full disclosure, my husband Brendan worked for Daniel Andrews, went to work for Daniel Andrews during the at the start of the pandemic. And so you can say what you like about me being biased or not biased. I've refrained from saying too much, but it did amaze me that the reporting was A, so negative, so inaccurate regarding polls that we kept reading about this liberal polling. There were stories in the Herald Sun by journalists I normally respect saying that Daniel Andrews was in danger of losing his seat. I mean, they didn't even need to go to preferences. It was, they, they were just made-up articles and made-up polls. Maybe a focus group who spoke to less than 200 people. Now, whatever you vote and whatever you think about Daniel Andrews, and people have strong opinions about hotel quarantine and what happened in the Housing Commission flats and what happened with the lockdowns, which people keep saying is the world's longest. It's what not. happened to my business? I lost it. Yeah. Now, is that Daniel Andrews' fault? I don't think it is. It was the pandemic's fault. But Daniel Andrews, people felt had a lot to answer for. But the world's longest lockdown, it wasn't. There were longer lockdowns in Argentina. In China still. In the, in the Netherlands. Anyway, but I, I just can't believe the inaccuracy and that the nastiness of the, you know, delving back into a car accident that happened, you know, more than a decade ago in a car that Daniel Andrews wasn't driving, in an incident that would have been traumatic for his wife. I thought it was really pointed that his wife introduced him in the mm. victory speech. Mm. We saw a lot more of her in this campaign. And those, that could be because the kids are a bit older and it's a bit easier for her to be out on the hustings. I thought it was also his way of saying, mm. yes, you know, up, up yours. Yeah. <laughs> you just did your finger to me, so yeah. I will tell. I will tell our messengers what you actually great, did. Great podcast, isn't it? No, and the and and the final point is is that, is that the conspiracy theory about the steps. I mean, is that all? Is that was that the best? And the, the photo, and the photo of the Bligary Beach. The steps house. that took down a premier. Is that the best the Herald Sun has mm. to answer? I mean, do people still actually believe they could have made up how this guy broke his back? I I just find it extraordinary. Well, there's a lot. There is a lot to unpack, and going to going to your paper, the Age, its headline said, uh, a, a re, "Is this a reset of the political landscape?" Well, they weren't predicting that on election day. No, they certainly weren't. I don't weren't, know where. But, I mean, um, the polls that the parties had got the night before were pretty definitive that Labor was going to win. I don't well, know how a, the newspapers got it so It was a good day so for the pollsters, wasn't it? For the first time in a while, they, they their predictions were... Um, with, Except none of the papers reported no, them. Right. <laughs> but uh, look, I think it has changed the political landscape this election. The question is, of course, for how long. At grassroots level, um, the Andrews government certainly has been put on notice. Carol, I just felt in the last few weeks reading the letters to the editor, listening to talkback radio even standing in the coffee shop on Saturday morning and I heard a group of people talking about the voting and the election and people are still so furious with Daniel Andrews uh, for whatever reason and it's all I think it was all connected clearly to lockdowns but they have been put on notice. But, well, he I, was the face of the lockdown. He was the face he? of the lockdown, yeah. exactly. He was and, the face of the pandemic and, and, and the government, as he said, leadership, you're not always popular. The government does have to address this integrity issue and this cloud that's hovering around it and... Of course, we've seen a number of senior ministers in the Andrews governments of recent times. They resigned at this election. So Daniel Andrews must put a succession plan in place and identify those talented people. I think he's done that already. And and give them some tough portfolios, Carol, and actually share the responsibility and allow them to be heard by Victorians. So it's not just Daniel Andrews' government. I think he really has to 
um, like he used to do with Martin Foley and so on, bring some people to the fore. Well, James Molino obviously stood in for a long time. He was yeah. absent for months. He has to. He has to do this immediately. I feel to to, to so this new well, he government. Did, he did do it immediately. Is, well, it was seen the, as the not a one after, band, one man. But the day band. after the election, the deputy premier, who will clearly be the next leader, yep. She gave. She spoke. She was a press with him, conference. Yeah. I think so he's I, absolutely done. So that. I think he, I think that's where they have to take that. The Liberal Party took a punt when it reinstated Matthew Guy as leader, and the gamble failed. And I think there is a feeling in some electorates uh, that the Liberal Party was deaf to a lot of the issues that the Victorians hold dear dear to them, uh, particularly I mean climate change just being one of many. And I think also Victorians this this skew of the or this view of the. Um, Murdoch media, you saw a lot of it um, in the Murdoch media that that one man was responsible for the pandemic. I think Victorians felt that the pandemic should be a bipartisan issue, that we should all be working together and somehow take the politics out of the lockdown. I think that's how Victorians mostly have felt the last three years with justified um, concerns about how things were unfolding. But um, anyway, it all kind of came home to roost the other night. Um, well, the election showed that people didn't hate Daniel Andrews is yeah, what it showed. it did, exactly. And it showed that they mightn't have liked what went on, but there was a swing against Labor in very safe Labor seats, which were really in the, the west or the north of Melbourne, and the National Party staged a bit of a comeback. The Greens, after much fanfare, won one seat, I think, in the end, or that's what it's looking like at the moment, Richmond. Yeah, and, and Teals were, were just a blip in the radar. But I, I thought it was interesting, Caro, on election night uh, in his victory speech, Daniel Andrews um, referred to some advice that Prime Minister Paul Keating had given him. Son, leadership isn't about doing what's popular. Leadership is about what about doing what's right. And I think for Dan, yes, stick to your knitting in this next cycle. Back your tough decisions. Stick to your message. Uh, and don't listen to Harold's son, shrill Andrew Bolt articles. Um, well, well, just get on with it. For Andrew Bolt less than an hour after it was obvious that Labor had won, to write a column saying he needs to resign and he's in, in indelibly scarred. I mean, it was it was almost cartoonish. That was a cartoonish column, Corrie. How, he, he's just won a third election, which is quite historic. And, a, again, you know, Andrew Bolt clearly loathes him and comes from the other side of politics. But that wasn't one of the more inaccurate, ridiculous columns I've ever read. He, yeah, he didn't it, come anywhere. I mean, again, the Herald Sun kept saying... I mean, I, I, look, I'm the first to say that opinion writers and opinion pieces have must have a role in democracy. They course. are so important. I don't but always I, agree I was, with Andrew when Bob, I read it, when it, insane. When I read it a couple of days ago, I caught up with it a bit late to the party, but um, I thought, what, what, what is he trying to say here? What, what, is the, what is the message here about a Premier who's just won a, a, another term and is likely to be our longest serving or is on track to be our longest serving Premier. It is. It's a real worry um, about the Liberal Party, but you know, because yeah. we should – they've done so badly now in they the – They need to identify talent. In our last two in elections. Their, yeah, and they need to identify talent in their grassroots, Caro, and they need to get some women in and they need to have a strategy now, like immediately. One of the papers for, had an article next saying – Daniel Andrews is on the nose with women. Now, again, completely inaccurate. The, the, if Daniel Andrews had an issue, it was more with men. And, and again, I don't know where they got that. They make up these – they're not polls anymore. They seem to be sort of focus groups. And the focus groups are just not right. Well, the focus groups are probably slanted. Do you think the public is now smart enough to not only not listen 
to the Herald Sun, but um, maybe go go to the you know be pushed the other way because of the Herald Sun. Well, I thought the, the Murdoch the, media the, 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 the most interesting headline that I read over the weekend, whether you agree with it or not, was in the Guardian. And it says, Murdoch's tabloids and Sky News have opened seemingly never-ending culture wars against which the average Australian knows little and cares less. Very interesting, because of course in America there is there are culture wars raging at the moment and threatening the stability of the country. Certainly it'll have a massive impact on the 2024 presidential election, but... Isn't that interesting? Average Australians, do they really care? Do they really want to get into this nasty um, name-calling black versus white? I think Australians by nature are more prepared to listen. And in fact, Daniel Andrews' speech on Sunday was very measured and really interesting. He talked about, one of the things he talked about was making Victoria the place for ideas, the place for open discussion, which of course was ticking all my boxes given that I'm about to launch a writer's festival in a few months. But the importance of ideas and sharing ideas and being respectful of one another. And I think he's on message there and I think he absolutely picked up the zeitgeist of the community. I think we are all prepared to listen to the other side, providing we get accuracy and we get facts. And sometimes the facts in some of the Murdoch media are swamped by all the opinion. I think that's right, and 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 it also shows that if you're the premier, you don't actually have to go on top-rating radio stations anymore either. It, yes, rely on your own media networks. Well, and yeah, your own which message, is, social media, digital media, which is a way. I mean, they you frequently hear um, a lot of politicians on the ABC and on Virginia Trioli and Raf Epstein in particular, and but you know you don't. Well, he won't. He won't go on Neil Mitchell, Daniel Andrews, and it sort of hasn't really affected tell, affected him. Tell me something, Caro, about this group think that you mentioned earlier. This group think idea or concept that uh, we could say pretty much bombed in this election. But what? Why? Are, why are journalists all jumping in the one camp together so willingly? Well, I we think saw in, a bit of it in the federal election too. Yeah, I think in this case they were barracking for the story. You know, I mean. People wanted, um, people thought that Daniel Andrews and his handling of the pandemic was going to go against him. Um, interestingly, when he went on against the other group thing, when he went on that debate on Sky last week, he didn't get one question, not one question about the pandemic, which was extraordinary. Andrew Bolt was almost bursting a foofa valve in the segment afterwards. Why didn't anyone ask him about his handling of the, about hotel quarantine? Um his health department, you know, blah blah blah. Um, I think I think they were barracking for the story. I think there was a view that I, I can't speak for the Age, and the Age is my newspaper. But I think the Herald Sun was so, 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 so anti Daniel Andrews and anti the ALP to the point where you know they started this whole sort of nasty campaign, really personal campaign against the Premier. I mean that that unfortunate boy who was riding the bike who T-boned into the Andrews car, you know, he's not going to sue anyone. He got an $80,000 payment at the time from the TAC. That, that, that stuff's just not going to happen. And um, I think they were going so far one way that maybe all the other media thought, well, we've got to cover these stories. We've got to follow these stories. We're going to look like we're sticking up for the Premier if we don't follow these stories. So um, news 
you know, TV news and radio news and the age, what the age didn't actually, but they're all, they're probably all ringing up going, oh, we don't really think this is a story, but we feel we need to follow it up. And we need to all sort of not look like idiots if, you know, this the, the polls are wrong and, you know, the okay. government. So, here, so here's my take on that. Is in a minority. Here's my take on that. If newspapers or news organisations have really strong leaders, I mean editors, I don't mean Rupert Murdoch in New York, if they have a really strong editor, the editor will say, this is why we're covering it and this is the reason. Or they'll say, we're not going to get into the weeds on this one like everybody else is. It's not relevant to our mission, which is to bring the facts and figures of the election to the to our readers or to our viewers. So who in these offices are making the decisions about what are the stories? Who's, who's, who's defining the editorial policy? Well, definitely oh, the editors. But do you think they're... They're they're jumping at what they think Rupert Murdoch and the and the owners of the organisation are thinking politically. What they're wanting are they second guessing their bosses? Is their heart really in this? Do they really believe that this should be their mission? And do they tell their reporters, even those who are on the campaign hustings and reporting the facts of the day? Do you think the it's a message that they send through, or is it subliminal? I think it's subliminal and I think they're questioning, second-guessing themselves as much as their editors. Well, they need good leaders in these newspaper offices. Well, I, th- I think the age went down the sort of community level and what are the issues facing the community and they had all those small focus groups and they went to various, you know, groups and electorates and did it that way. But it was just a bit disappointing to pick up the paper on Saturday and read that Daniel Andrews was in danger of being in a minority government when the polling that everyone had received the night before, you know, and I know polls have been wrong before, but it was just completely wrong and it was, you know, way wrong. And I think, um, I think as I said, the Herald Sun looked clearly loathed Daniel Andrews, Murdoch Press hate him, tried to defeat him, didn't fire a shot. Um, same thing happened in this, if you remember the federal election, I mean, they openly campaigned for Josh Frydenberg and he lost the unlosable seat. I mean, again... Maybe the maybe the public are maybe it's a good sign that the public are going against groupthink and reading these ridiculously positive not the opposite of a hatchet job on Josh Frydenberg and his family in this fight to keep him and they they're thinking I'm not I'm not going to listen to this or do they just not read anymore do the people who they're trying to win over oh, not well, read papers inter- anymore That's an interesting question too isn't it But then why aren't they because are the messages and is the tone of the newspaper no longer relevant to them? I think you can win people back with a media organisation. I do. I really do. I know myself that I follow assiduously. I follow those media organisations I trust and I like, uh, not just ones that are pushing my barrow. Um, I mean, there are a couple that I do because philosophically I feel aligned, but I do trust the New York Times, you know. I do trust uh, the Guardian in England and to a lesser extent the Guardian in Australia. You know, I, I do trust them, so I read them. I, I, I pay my subscriptions. Anyway, isn't watching – it's it's great TV, isn't oh, it? <laughs> well, you know, well, I, you know me, my favourite time of the year, along with the Brownlow count. I love it. And, in fact, uh, there was a discussion, would we go to the surf club and have a drink? And um, we ummed and ahed for about 10 minutes, and I said, no, the election coverage is starting at 6 o'clock. We're not going anywhere. 
So, Caro, let's um, let's Anthony go. Anthony Green, I did see your friend the next morning when I went in to do Offsiders on the ABC because he was he had his he little... was floundering a bit with the Victorians. He wasn't he... completely over his patch there. Well, he 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 had his suitcase and he was heading back to Sydney, and um, he came and joined the um, Offsiders team. The Insiders had just been on. We were about to go on, and he was just he got. He got two seats mixed up at one point. He said, oh, I mixed up, you know, Morwell mm. with, not Morwell, but whichever seat it was. I said, no, Anthony, you know, of course you did a great job. We love you. fascinating <laughs> as ever. I know. And the fact that he's not, he's not a Victorian, uh, you know, like hats off. He, he did, he does get annoyed with himself. You can see it when he mucks something up. I thought, I thought Jacinta Allen, who I think will clearly be, is, is the succession plan. She was really interesting. David Davis was a bit lackluster, but maybe he was feeling a bit... And that Tony Barry, the pollster, he was hysterical. <laughs> he was hysterical. Good coverage all around. Miss Jane's just reminded us, it is Anthony Green. I can't believe Anthony. I got it wrong. I'm sorry. I'm Anthony very, Green. very sorry. Is this like Rishi Sumac? <laughs> <laughs> no. No. It's Sunak. It's Sunak. I cooked with Sumac the other day. <laughs> I will never cook with Sumac again and not have a little chuckle to myself. Time for Miles. Corrie, the cocktail cabinet is brought to us by Prince Wine Store and we welcome Miles Thompson every week. Just remember, Miles is about to talk Prosecco and Aperol and if you want to buy Prosecco, the much-talked-of controversial Prosecco, through Prince Wine Store, you can use the promo code MEWS at checkout in the store or online at www.princewinestore.com.au. So, Miles, um... Fascinating that the Italians are trying to stop us calling our homegrown Prosecco Prosecco. Yeah, not the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Happens and not every the last. time with these, these uh, bilateral agreements that we have. So, yeah, I, I guess just to get into it quickly, without too much preamble, the, 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 you know, they want it, they want it a, as a protected name, Prosecco. It's from Italy, blah, 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 all this sort of thing. The argument that Australia has is that Prosecco used to be a region like champagne, so yep. it had to come from that region, had to be the grape. It looked like that grape from that area, all that sort of thing. So that's what's protected in those EU wine laws. Like Chianti has to look, is Sangiovese, but it, well, with other grapes, but has to look like Sangiovese growing in Chianti because of the soils and the weather and all these sort of things. So that's what's protected about those names. That's why you can't call Sangiovese in Australia Chianti because it's not, doesn't come from there, doesn't taste like that, doesn't smell like that. The issue with Prosecco is Prosecco, while it used to be a regional thing, isn't anymore. This is how I understand it. You can make Prosecco anywhere in the country as long as it's from the Grape Clara and as long as it's the basic methods used to make sparkling wine. Go back to the grape issue. So how does that translate for us here? Prosecco in Australia is made from Glera and it is made in a sparkling style. So, so the argument is so the argument is is just like it's not regional specific, it's not of a particular area. So what are you protecting? All you're protecting is the method and the grape and we do the method and we use the grape. The other thing is we have a history that's tied to making prosecco in Australia. We've been making prosecco in Australia for a long time. Um, and also it's not a regional thing. It's not about it tasting from somewhere. Prosecco can be made from anywhere, although the best ones tend to be from that that Veneto region. So we, we follow the rules essentially of Prosecco. If we did have to change, what would we call us what would we call our product? I don't know. Italian sparkling. Probably just probably just sparkling glara or some sort of sparkling Which something. Which is not nearly as sexy as No. 
No, it's not. Because it's a brand. It's a brand. I understand it's a, people. So the bra- it's a branding. It's a fight. branding thing, really. You're, so the, I it, think so. What he's saying is, good luck, Italians. We're not changing. I yeah. My understanding is that trouble. technically you could still call it prosecco and sell it here in Australia. You just wouldn't be able to sell it overseas. I'm pretty Why sure that's how it works. But when I hear the words prosecco, I see myself in La Fontana on the Via del Corso. Just because you're, you're a total wanker. Really? No, no, <laughs> it's a good look. There is, no, there is a good don't, argument. Don't evocative. It's evocative. I agree with you. I agree yeah. too. I'll there is, there back, is an Corey, argument. I hear Prosecco you know, like, and it's I like think an, It's like an Uzo. You know, yeah. oh, Greek Taverna. Anyway, regardless of what happens currently, we can still call it Prosecco. But I mean, I've got two Prosecco Proseccos, proper Prosecco. Two Italian ones. <laughs> two Italian ones. Oh, that's very kind of you. Sure. Well, very politically correct. They're very. They're both very good. So, one's called the Borga Molino. Prosecco. Borgamolino. And it's from the Valdebiana, I think that's the way you say it. Valdebiana Hill, so it's a hill in Veneto that's quite famous for, for Prosecco, like traditional Prosecco. If people are imagining where this is, it's northern, yeah, northern, northern east. Yeah, northern in the, in the middle, sort of Italy, a little bit yeah. to the east. Up the yeah. very top of the boot. Beautiful where, part of the world. Where Caro often gets the boot stuck around her calf. <laughs> yeah. So up that, yeah, up that top. So, so Borgamolino, so $27, just a really great, like, fruity-style Prosecco probably that you're sort of used to. Um, nice sort of easy bubbles. You know, you know, Prosecco, it's never like, generally speaking, it's never super, super serious. And that's what this is, just very easy, very drinkable. It's that also lovely s- fresh fruit, you know, that easy sort of. It's also slightly sort of less in alcohol content as well. Yeah, it's usually a little bit lower because yeah. it tends to be a little bit fruitier. Some Proseccos are sweeter than others, so you've just got to be careful with Prosecco. Some are quite fruity and sweet. This is probably I would call maybe in the middle ground. It's not super dry, but it's not it's not on that super fruity end of things. So mm-hmm. we thought it was very good value. So twenty seven dollars. I think it's a nice little nice little wine. The other one is the Belinda Sayuno. Now we import this ourselves. These guys are kind of these little trio trio of guys. They're kind of rock stars. They're, I haven't been there, but apparently they're hilarious to hang out with. These are method traditional Prosecco, which is kind of what you used to see maybe more traditionally in that region. So they're, they're sparkling made in the bottle. So they, they actually get the bubbles in the bottle. So each bottle is uh, um, does the second fermentation in the bottle, and that's where you get the bubbles. So like champagne, it's not like champagne, but you get finer bubbles when you do it in the bottle. So there's a more of a – it's more elegant. There's more a finesse more refined to it. Kind it's of a much more refined sort of style of Prosecco. And do we know the and name of these? And it's also vintage as well. So and What's the this? name of these three stooges? What's their – Oh, I can't remember. Look, go on their website. Belenda is the – Belenda and the cost? E-E-L-E-N-D-A. So this is $40 a bottle. Oh, lots of But this drinks like more serious sparkling than it drinks like Prosecco. Is it drier? Because I don't like a sweet – It is much, much drier. Oh, that's – it's yep. like the one and for me. You better yeah, spell, you better I spell it for it's us. It's very good. You better spell the name. So Belenda is B-E-L-L-E-N-D-A, Belenda. And this one's called Say Uno. And it's a 2018, so it's also a vintage as well. Oh, so they're trying to great. sort of bring back the like, here, this is why Prosecco was so special, because we used to do this bottle fermentation rather than in big tanks, which is generally what you see for most Prosecco. You know, it's a much more refined sort of style. And, and these guys are trying to bring it back. They do a bunch of others. They do about five of them. They do some natural ones, some really funky ones, and all that sort of thing. But this is sort of their so Miles, when you, standard, when you, I guess, when you, you do the "Don't it. Shoot the Messenger" mm. trip to Italy with all of us coming <laughs> along, um, as well as Piedmont, can we go and see the this particular? Sure. I love that northern part as well. I love yeah. Tuscany; it's beautiful too. 
It is. It's, and I've never been to the Seriously, south. Seriously, so. wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> Miles takes us ten day tour of the wineries that you can't normally get into. I'd go anywhere in Italy. I thought you were going to say oh, you go anywhere, anywhere with, with Miles. Miles. <laughs> well, no, I'd, I'd have nice. I'd have a few exceptions, but Italy, Italy with Miles sounds pretty yeah, good to me. Can we work that up? Now, Miles, when I think of Prosecco, I think of Aperol spritzes, sure. which I first had, I think, as a Venetian spritz. Which they were, I think some people say they started in Venice. I'm not sure. Someone will argue with me. Certainly there. popular there. They are. <laughs> now, so you've got an Aperol and you've got a quasi Aperol. Yeah, so so one's called Sophie. So S O F I. So Sophie, uh, they just call it like Sophie Aperitivo. They've got a couple of different ones. They've like got a grapefruit and lavender, and I think there's something else. But this is their, I guess that you would call it their classic. So this is. Blood orange and bitters, so blood orange and those kind of bittering herbs and roots mm. and things that you see. Um, maybe not quite as sweet as Aperol, which I kind of like, even though I have a bit of a sweet tooth, I kind of like it because it's not quite as sweet as Aperol. And it has some Aussie herbs and things and like that, so it's got a slightly more Aussie bent. But I think for me it looks pretty pretty classic as far as what an Aperol looks like. Oh, I just I and, suddenly want one. Yeah, as it's you're really describing good. it, isn't it funny when Miles yeah. talks about just on ice with a slice of orange? You do me. Yeah, they talk about it's serving beautiful. in that way if you want, or or you could certainly mix it with prosecco. Now, I would always say mix it with a cheaper prosecco, yeah, a less expensive prosecco because really, you know, you're diluting and, 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 stuff. So and that's, soda that's water—that's the three ingredients, really. Isn't and a bit it? of soda water. Although I've, I don't think I've ever put soda water in mine. Oh, Miles, I always put soda <laughs> water in mine. Miles, you soak. <laughs> <laughs> and what's uh, the other one? Is the other and one? Twenty six, oh, twenty five. Sorry, twenty five dollars. Oh, Sophie, yeah, yeah. S O F I. S O F I. Yes. Apparently, sat at the Bondi markets. Um, okay. Young guy there or guy there, and and then it was very super popular, and then he sort of crowd funded it, and it turned into what it is now. So it, oh, I yeah. think it's really cool. I bet it's a pretty bottle too. It's actually not. It looks like a classic Ital- a bit ugly Italian sort of label. A bit rusty. Yeah. Caro, can you stop cool. eyeing off, making what, spirit choices based on your <laughs> lemon cordial giving to friends for Christmas? <laughs> what to do with the empty bottles. I'm exactly. a bit over, overcome at the moment. It looks good, though. And, and the other one is Maidini, which I think we've talked about a few times I before. So Jules Apelou, so Maidini Vermouth, which are all awesome. Oh, yep. But he has one that he's put out called the Roselle Bitter. So, and it's one of its main ingredients that gives us its colour, which almost looks fake because it's so bright. And if you look at Aperol, it's almost a fake kind of looking colour, is uh, hibiscus. So that's what he uses to colour it. Wow. Yeah, it's oh, really hibiscus. cool. Hibiscus. me at hibiscus. Yeah, and it has, and it has that flavour. How love... is your hibiscus going, Carol? Well, it's actually, <laughs> a, it's been another, another pot now in a new sunny position, hopefully doing a bit better. Turn it Sorry. into some Roselle bitters or something. Well, I'm, I could. <laughs> I could. I doubt Make it, Make it yourself. I and doubt it though. So rosé based wine, so it's kind of like made by like for mousse. So rosé based wine, bittering herbs and roots and stuff. And to give it a bit of a bitter mu- thing. How much? That's more expensive. So that's forty eight, but it's still pretty it's, good. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, considering yeah, if you're going to put it idea. in spritz or something, yeah. you'd only put like you know, sixty mils in it. And... So is it like the colour of Aperol? That yeah, it's got that really like bright intense. It's the colour potties of if you put a whole lot of raspberries in the blender, it's that sort of colour. Yeah, it's got an almost iridescent kind mm. of... Anyway, really cool, very cool. Beautiful. Mm, definitely on the drier side of things, again, like as compared to Aperol, um, maybe a little bit more bitter. It's it's probably more halfway between like a Campari and an Aperol, but, but you could certainly use it in a Negroni or, or definitely in an Aperol spritz. But really Sounds cool. They're wonderful. both really cool, and I think nice thing to try something a little different. Yeah, different. great. I love that. Um, Prosecco and Aperol spritzes. 
Here I we told come. you when I was Absolutely. down in the south of Italy a few months ago, we had the um, Amalfi Spritz, which was just probably made up at this bar, this tiny bar in this tiny hilltop town, which had limoncello. And oh, soda, okay. and soda, and prosecco. Oh, beautiful! It was, and not too much lemon. <coughs> and a pretty obviously. colour too. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, just with lemon or lime. Oh, great cocktail! I don't really like lemon cello, but no. Well, people <laughs> say that, but a bit of prosecco and I soda. I might have it in that though. Yeah, it worked. It and with a lot worked. of ice, lemon cello is mm. really good. Because I love Bickford's lemon cordial. Yeah, the, and I imagine it's probably a little bit like that. Well, in a, oh, no, in, in a, in no, it's a, nothing like that, Miles. Like the Bigfords. My lemon cordial is nicer is that what than Bigfords. Thank you, Miles. But yeah, the Bigfords is pretty good. <laughs> well, Miles, that's great. A couple of Proseccos that actually come from Italy. A couple of Aperol style aperitifs that we yeah. can use in our Aperol spritz. And um, might even throw it. You could add a little drop with a gin and tonic too. Or, oh, for sure. Or, or use it in a groin. Very versatile, those, those types of things, I think. you know, And, and on their own, you know, ice mm. and a bit dash of soda and a, and a wedge of, you know, Orange or something. And remember, you can tell we're spending more time on the alcohol section with Miles, the Prince Wine Store section, <laughs> as we head into summer. Just remember, that was the cocktail cabinet brought to us by Prince Wine Store and Miles Thompson. And that website again, www.princewinestore.com.au and use the promo code MEWS at checkout for your Don't Shoot the Messenger discount. Thanks, Miles. Thank you. Sorry, my favourite segment of our show is BS and F, Book, Screen and Food. And you've got two beautiful gardening books. I think two beautiful gardening books there. Two beautiful gardening books. New gardening books. So I would like to thank Helen and the Flower Press team for sending this beautiful book to me uh, to review on Corrie is Reading, my Instagram account, but also on this show. This beautiful book is called Garden Gathered. Floral Design and Rural Life at Riversdale Farm. Carol, Helen Leeton is the brain behind this beautiful Riverdale Farm, which is a flower-growing farm in Western Australia. It's near Albany. I think they say Albany, actually. In America? No, in Australia. Oh, yeah. In Western Australia. Okay, yep. Um, So... Uh, Helen has studied for many years garden design at the Inchbald School of Design and Floral Design and other with other leading botanical artists in the UK. And this is her memoir, but also just beautiful observations of growing gardens in her farm and lots and lots of ideas relating to flower design and floral arrangement. You'll remember 100 years ago when I had beautiful cottage gardens and I was really, really into gardening. Now I have a seaside garden that basically looks after itself. But I was forever cutting and doing posies and taking to friends and vases. I wish I'd had this book because the ideas in this are so beautiful. I mean, I just I wish I could show all the potties the different um, the different pictures here. I'm trying to show you and Jane as I'm talking, but just really beautiful use of colour and designs, but also how she grows the flowers, tips on all sorts of things to do with insects and companion planting. It's a beautiful book, Garden Gathered, and... Um, I think you can probably just get on, to, jump onto the website, or jump onto fla- the flower. Does it press. inspire you to change the way you? Well, it it inspires me, Caro. Sadly, 
not in my own garden. It inspires me to do something with Francesca's garden in Ballarat, which is a beautiful garden, I have to say, and it's a, pretty much a perennial garden, but she has lots and lots of roses. And gardening in Ballarat is a completely different experience to, yep. to the Morning Peninsula. So I'm in my happy place in her garden. My garden down here is it's the soil is very sandy. It's really difficult to grow anything other than um, lavender and agapanthus. Roses, I haven't found a happy spot. I've moved things around. So basically I'm just now, okay, it's mooners and she-oaks as the big guys in the garden and then ground covers and agapanthus um, and lots of uh, indigenous um, to the area. But it also looks like it's got beautiful, like not flower. This book. Yeah. Yeah. Flower arranging. Yes. Lots of flower arranging and just lots of planting tips. But if you are into flowers, this is the, or you know somebody who is, this is the perfect book. The cover of it is exquisite. And as I said, you can pick up a copy via the Flower Press, um, their website. sounds beautiful. Anna from the Op Shop's thinking of doing a flower arranging course. Well, look, she should have a look at this book because I I just think what they're doing at Riverdale Farm and, and Helen's talent is just um, – and, and it's just a beautifully designed and beautiful product, self-published. What does and it retail for? I don't know. It's funny you should ask that because this was a gift that they sent me. I don't know, but we'll have that on the show notes, what the price is. Okay. The other one, Cara, which is more in line with my gardening career these days, is this gorgeous book with nature, Garden Designed by Fiona Brockoff. And photography by Earl Carter. Many people will remember Earl Carter's photographs in Bell and Vogue Living, particularly in the, 18, in the 1980s. I'm going to say 1880s. 1980s, 1990s. Earl Carter is a star and a master of interior design and exterior design and also gardens. This, is a, this book is divided into three parts. Um, Fiona Brockoff is a well-known, renowned Melbourne garden designer. She She's known throughout Australia and this is her first gardening book and this is the one actually that I've been on tour with her. We've been doing a few gigs together. You've been around Victoria with her. We have been doing around Victoria, uh, but um, and we've had some, we've met some fantastic people, and we've had a wonderful time. But the the I met this most sincerely at our event last night, which was actually in Malvern here in Melbourne, when I said every time I dip into this book to try and find another angle or something different to talk to Fiona about, I find myself half an hour later still immersed. This book is rich in text, and Fiona writes like a dream. So the first part of the book, the first section, is her story, how she came to become a garden designer which is a fascinating story in itself, and also her garden philosophy, which is very much work with the landscape, not against it, and tread lightly. So um, her her signature garden down at Sorrento... Sounds um, like you're following that philosophy now. Yeah, well, I'm tr- well, yes. Well, her garden down at Sorrento, which, Kakala, which features significantly oh, in so this... so beautiful. It has been on various gardening programs on the telly, and, but... It, she has really inspired me to rethink my garden and fall in love with some of the natives that I think look a bit grey and grim, but to actually just maybe, um, you know, uh, hedge them in a different way or prune them into balls or just thinking outside the square a bit. The second part of the book is very much um, what to do and how to do it. So it's structure, design and soils and um, looking at your climate and great advice there. And then the third part of the book, Fiona has been very generous with all her planting lists, which a lot of gardeners like recipes, they hold close to themselves. But she's been very generous and she's featured 12 gardens that she's done, signature gardens 
and the oldest one is 15 years old, so it's very much grown into itself. The youngest garden, I think, is two or three years old. And they're dotted all around um, Victoria, uh, Melbourne and um, either side of the bay. And, and uh, they're just they're inspirational because you look at the beautiful photos and you think, gosh, I could turn my garden path into that sort of gravel and make it look really beautiful like that. Or I could actually whack a tree there just as they've done because that's unexpected and that would look fabulous. And, um, and of course, at Kalkara and other places, um, Fiona is very big on um, eating, eating what you grow. So there's lots of veggie patch um, information as well and lemon tree information too. But I love this book. I think Fiona Brockoff has done an incredible job, as has Hardy Grant. The publishers, they have spared no expense in the production of this book. It's $70. It is a beautiful, beautiful gift for um, anybody you know who's a gardener, particularly uh, Victoria and Melbourne gardens, Cara, because most of the gardening books in Australia come out of Sydney and Queensland, and as we know, very different climate. Paul Bangay and Fiona Brockoff, I reckon, are the two kind of go-tos here in Melbourne. He was my sister's bridesmaid and vice versa. There you go. And um, and he introduced me years ago in my first proper garden in Windsor to um, Virginias and lamb's ears and all those. He's got, he's come a long way since then and hopefully I've come a little way since then, but he's a, no, he's an absolute star. So they're two wonderful books from Corrie Garden Gathered and With Nature, the first by Helen Layton and the second by Fiona Brockhoff. Corrie, I'm embarrassed, almost embarrassed to recommend this screen but I'm going to anyway because it got me absolutely hooked. Anyone who's have you have you watched it, Miss Jane? Virgin River on Netflix. Look, my daughter rose over in Amsterdam, put me onto it. She's normally pretty good with the good tips. I thought this will be quality stuff. Oh my lord! It is the genre is romance drama. It is probably more melodrama. It is. Worth watching, if only for the setting. It's meant to be in an obscure sort of part of um, California, in inland, but in Northern California. But it's actually filmed, I think, in Canada, in British Columbia. I mean, the star of the show is definitely, definitely the landscape, this beautiful river. So you're watching a romance. It is. That's I've watched not like it. you. I've done. I've done four series. Oh, four like, series or four episodes? Four series. Oh my God. Well, not just in the last. I tell week. you what, like the, fo- in the last few. The, the footy season ends, and where do we find Caro sitting on the sofa? No, I'm actually. It's a sort of show you can watch when you're like sorting out your um, ca- sorting out your um spice cabinet or clearing your fridge. Just turn it on. I mean, you might miss the odd line. It, it really doesn't matter. This is the the story is, but the the star of the show is a scenery. But the other star is a gorgeous um, actor by the name of Alexandra Breckenridge. She plays Melinda Mel Munro, who is a nurse who escapes Cal- who escapes um, L.A. or San Francisco, wherever she lives in the city, to come to this you know small town. She drives into the town late one night. There's drama from the moment she arrives. She is escaping. It quickly becomes apparent a really horrific tragedy in her life and one of the first person, person she meets oh, is the elusive Jack Sheridan <laughs> played by Martin Henderson he runs a bar called Jack's Bar he's a former marine, marine with a lot of problems I was going to say back, backstory elusive 
doesn't want to fall in love again, has ha- has had heartbroken. Yeah. The other two main characters are an older couple, played by Tim Matheson and Annette O'Toole, over-actress of the highest order. Hope McRae is her name. She's the mayor of the town. And Tim Matheson is Doc, the town doctor, who Mel's coming to work for, who he insults when the first time she meets him because she doesn't realise he's a doctor. They're married, but they're not married. That's a different story. The local characters... <coughs> are fascinating and completely cliched. There is um, uh, an underworld sort of drug theme, fentanyl sort of smuggling theme. There's a bit of a – there's a former marine post-traumatic stress disorder theme. Babies is a massive theme. Um, Mel has fertility issues and Jack's former partner becomes pregnant. I'm not going to go any further – by the end of series four, none of it is resolved. So, Carol, none it, of it is one resolved. One question: Is this trash? It's good trash. You, you I, I watched the first two shows and went, "Oh, Rose, really?" And then I just and Rose has apparently recommended it to families and friends around the world, and they've all gone, "I can't." I'm almost embarrassed for you. Then they all get hooked. I can almost hear the scratching of the pen as potties out there are writing this down. Virgin River. Anyway, it's good <laughs> non-thinking. Sort out your fridge, wrap up your Christmas present type. Oh, if yes. You, you yes, know, you know right. you always need something on the De- I decorated the, the Christmas then. tree through about two episodes. It's um, it's beautiful to watch. The town is beautiful. There's all these other things. There's all these other characters. And I got to the end of Series 4 and I thought that was the end. I went, no, you couldn't leave it like this. But the Series 5 is happily on the go in British Columbia and will be on our screens next year. Netflix. Anyway, Corrie, that's enough from me. You are going to tell us about your one-pan spiced chicken with green olives, chorizo and peppers. Also known as election night dinner. It sounds So this delicious. was it. So once we'd said no to the surf club drinks, I started cooking and I had some chicken thighs in the fridge and I had most of these ingredients whizzed down to the shop quickly. And this is from Julia Bazutal Nishimura, the author of Ostro. Many people know her as Julia Ostro. This is her latest cookbook, which I've talked about before, Around the Table, Delicious Food for Every Day. Well, we can now see it because you were before you were doing, you know, what's it called? Release details and giving us recipes before oh, you had yes. the book. That's right. Yes, I had a proof proof copy. So here we are. So I will not go into the ingredients, Caro, the list of it, but I just want potties to not be overcome by the long list because most of it, particularly if you cook a bit of Yotta Motolenghi stuff, most of this you will have in your pantry. So don't freak out when you go, oh, gosh, there's too many things. But there's things like, you know, obviously garlic and onion, which you fry up and red capsicum. But we have cinnamon and we have cardamom and we have smoked paprika and we have um, tom- tomato paste. <laughs> Rishi's not there. You just have to probably go and buy, a, ask for one cure, cured chorizo. So this recipe was for four to six people. and But chicken stock, bay leaves, white wine, Pitted green olives, parsley leaves and lemon wedges to decorate. But essentially what you do, Carol, is this is one pan cooking, so long as your fry pan can go into the oven. So You can't do it in a Le Creuset pot? No. Um, no, you really need the fry, and I'll tell you why in a second. You okay, really need sorry. to be able to fry it up. So um, you, uh, you obviously season the chicken generously. You warm the olive oil and uh, lightly, lightly cook for two or three minutes either side the chicken until the skin is golden. Um, set that aside and then reduce the heat on that pan. Add up your cho- add your chopped 
onion, garlic, your capsicum with a bit, little bit of salt. I think the salt is important in this recipe. Sometimes you can leave it out, but I did feel mm, that we... I, I never leave it out. Um, and then um, you gently cook all that till it begins to colour. Then you add the spices and you you cut up the chorizo. It says cr- Julia says crumble in the chorizo. I once I'd stripped the casing off the chorizo, I was so exhausted. I thought oh, I'm just going to cut it really finely. That was fine. Um, tomato paste, um, and then you pop in rice. Now the rice that she suggests, I couldn't find at the local shop, Calaspara rice. So I think probably if you go to uh, Mediterranean wholesalers or if you have a really good deli, you'll find it. I couldn't find it in our local fruit and veg shop. Is it long grain or a risotto yeah. type? Well, I think it looks like a risotto type. Short I just grain. Yeah. So I just I just used whatever we had in the pantry and I can't remember what it was, but um, it worked absolutely fine. But um, that's that's her advice there. So um, then you're kind of cooking almost like a risotto-y sort of thing with chicken stock um, and the bay leaves, oregano and... Um, and a bit of wine in there as well. And then you put the chicken, once that's all cooked up a bit, um, and it start, the rice starts to get a bit sticky on the bottom. So you're frying it on top of the stove at this point? Yes, you are, yeah. Um, but um, you, uh, you then put this, the chicken thighs back into the pan and you put the pan into the oven um, halfway through the cooking time, so 20 minutes in, you pull it out and scatter olives all through it and then return the pan to the oven and cook for another 10 minutes or until the rice is tender and the chicken is golden and cooked through. Just be careful on that point. That's probably the only tricksy kind of unpredictable element on this. Again, you know I have this really odd oven down at the beach and um, I just had to keep watching it. Just I, My test, the litmus test was the rice. I just kept looking at the rice because the chicken, when it's cooked in all that beautiful stuff, you can't really overcook it. For two, you know, it, it, It's not something that another 10 minutes you're going to overcook it and spoil the dish. And sorry, did you say thigh fillet skin on? Yeah. yeah. On the yeah. bone? Um, no, um, yeah, skin on. Yeah, yeah, skin on. So, so I did, yeah, on the bone. So I just, um, I just served it. I, I had um, a lettuce that had, had, was about to go to God. So I just chopped up the lettuce really finely with some parsley, put that in the bottom of a bowl because of course we were watching the telly. So we needed bowl food and I just put it all in the bowl. We were high-fiving. We could hardly talk for the first three minutes. And I, I was As bit, you chomped your way through. Well, I was a bit of a show-off. I did keep like seeking compliments. I said, how good is this? How good is this? It was perfect. So lots of ingredients, pretty easy to cook, but oh my gosh, what an amazing outcome. And it's something that you could easily serve at a casual dinner party. No doubt about that. Sounds fabulous. That was BSF for Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 806? So many questions today, Corrie, and we've only we can only do six, but you're going to kick us off because you're grumpy. Uh, I am grumpy, and over to Washington for this one, Caro. Um, it's been described by one commentator as the biggest Washington whiner story. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out that those staffers who are working on the House Select Committee investigating January 6 riots, so as you know, Caro, Liz Cheney's been leading the charge on this, and they, the, all of the legal teams and all of the staffers who have been working on this for almost two years are now coming to the pointy end of business and they're writing their report. There have been some complaints about Liz Cheney 
because she's pushing for the focus to be all on Donald Trump in the final report and not so much all of the legal ramifications, um, what led to this, uh, the FBI investigations. 15 former and current staffers working in this office spoke to the Washington Post. So they've broken the story and they've I'm going to say they've whinged and complained. They're described as disgruntled staffers, but they absolutely have it out for Liz Cheney at the moment. Bad losers. Well, look, we see this all the time in corporations and governments, don't we, where you're working on a really big contract, a really big report, something like that. It might take months to collect all the data. There's a whole team of people working. Inevitably, in that final report, Carrot, some stuff has to hit the cutting room floor. It's happened to you and I as journalists. How many times have you overwritten, you know? Always And you've got got to kill your darlings. Or movie directors. I mean, they weep buckets in the editing suite. So anyway, everybody has it out for um, poor old Liz Cheney, who's been through a fair bit. And one of the comments uh, from one of the staffers was she's just looking after her own political career, which, of course, makes us uh, consider the fact that Liz Cheney, I mean, how could she be trying to further her career with this? She's actually... By chasing Trump, she has destroyed her political career. Unless there's anything left afterwards, maybe she'll become the Republicans' nominee. I don't know. But she has no political career. She's been voted out of office. She's doing this because Donald Trump is the story. He is the reason that this all happened. So anyway, I'm a bit narky about those complaining staffers and the fact that they went public. And also they've taken the shine, or the momentarily, hopefully, they've taken the story has now become about them and the process, not actually what has happening here, which is a president of the United States in the last days of office has um, allowed uh, an insurrection and a storming of the Capitol building. And still doesn't think he lost, which is really weird. Like that, <laughs> which is really like the, weird. The bloke in Mulgrave who um, is demanding a recount even. Anyway, that's a, just another ridiculous. Um, it's funny, isn't it? And, and what's going on in Canberra at the moment is really only symbolic with the censure motion against Scott Morrison. But I think if if the current government thinks it really was beyond the pale to secretly make yourself the boss of three or four different ministries without telling the ministers, surely that does involve some sort of censure or some sort of just a bit of a cross against your name. Well, yeah, and they have to change the legislation. They have to ensure this doesn't happen again. So even if it is symbolic, I, I think it has to happen. Anyway, that was that was grumpy. Now if we read energy, it is time for six quick questions which will be rounded off with a, an amazing fact, hopefully. Corrie, what, what report surprised and alarmed you this week? Oh, I feel like I'm on a soapbox. soapbox. Sorry about this. I'm... Oh, we're not back in Washington, please. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> please. <laughs> no, did, but did you see that um, this, this UN-backed mission, which was um, sent yes. to the Great Barrier Reef, did you read that their, their report is so damning or this is so mm. concerning. So that's the thing I think that really worries me. This report was the instigation of former Federal Environment Minister Susan Lee to give her complete credit for this. But the report, which is a UN-backed mission, as I said, has has reported in that climate change was presenting a serious challenge to everything that we love about the um, the future and the safety and, and the fact that the... Um, of the, of the Great Barrier Reef and the fact that it was declared in 1981 a global wonder. And the report recommends that the reef be placed on a list of World Heritage Sites in danger. And they've also had a real crack at um, the Queensland government and and the farming and grazing going on that um, pollutes the reef's water systems. I thought it was a really compelling report um, and, I got, and I actually was shocked to see in danger that really 
It's yep. there in black and white, isn't it? No, terrible. Um, Caro, my question to you, aside from the Adam Goods chapter, what has been the biggest failing of the Gillan-McLaughlin AFL era? Failing to um, promote a successor. And what we're seeing now is that, you know, there's a few different people going for the job. They probably would have been the people, uh, Andrew Dillon, Travis Old, Brendan Gale, Tom Harley, maybe a bit young, maybe not. Christine Holgate? Uh, Do you take that seriously? That, um, that the, the suggestion that she's been... I don't know, but some people are uh, saying that she'd be a great candidate, but I don't think that will happen. Don't know. Don't think it will happen. Um, I think that's just a... It's really disappointing. And, I mean, you know, Andrew Demetrio didn't really have to promote Gillan McLaughlin. He was so brilliant as a number two that he promoted himself. But I think it is one area where Gillan has really let the side down. He hasn't managed to do that and he had a few ideas along the way and they haven't really worked out. Um, and it's endemic across the whole industry, Corrie, that there's so few up-and-coming CEOs at club level. Mm. And um, we've still got two clubs without CEOs and the, one of the favourites for the Essendon job is Carl Delina, a former North Melbourne CEO who was very good and people felt was, was probably removed for the, all the wrong reasons by North a few years ago. But... They started this young executive program at the AFL. I don't know where it went. I don't know where all these good people are coming from. So it's across the industry. It's happening in at AFL headquarters. But on a happier note, um, a woman who I'm a great admirer of, admirer of um, yesterday became North Melbourne's chief executive. Oh, who's that? Her name is Jen Watt. Um, full disclosure, she's, a, oh, yeah, she's a, probably a good acquaintance of mine. Um, I always thought she would get the job. It was being reported that Simon Lloyd, Matthew Lloyd's brother, who's a footy boss at Geelong, was the favourite. I was a bit surprised because I always felt Jen was an up-and-coming star. She was a, an executive at the Melbourne Footy Club, worked at Melbourne for many years, won the Graham Samuel Scholarship for young administrators in the AFL, had a brief secondment at the AFL, probably should have been given the job of running AFLW but wasn't, went to work under Stuart Fox at the MCC and um, is probably his number two or in his second line of report. He's just a, he's a gun. And I am so glad North Melbourne, who have a woman president, now have the AFL's second woman CEO. Well, and I'm unlike, glad they've appointed one, unlike Essendon, I think, that and still, as we speak, is still going through the... Yes, there are a couple of clubs still looking for CEOs. And, um, it Isn't is a, it bizarre? There's just a dearth of, of talent. Well, Collingwood want... Um, Collingwood wanted two of the people they wanted. One was Xavier Campbell. Well, he's going off to the south of France for at least half a year to get away from footy and do other stuff. And um, I think Craig Kelly's favourite for that job. But it is extraordinary. And there's there's just it, – it's not good enough. And usually if you come from outside, it doesn't really work. Tracy Gaudry was the first woman CEO at Hawthorne. Mm, pretty wasn't so successful. unmitigated mm. disaster. Well, it didn't work out. It mm. didn't work out. Jen Watt, I believe it will, and I think she's going to do a brilliant job. Corrie, in preparing for your Desert Island Discs radio appearance this week, when can we hear that, Corrie, or is it gone? Last Sunday Last it was on, 3MBS. Which five songs did you choose? Well, I actually wanted to ask you this too. Have a think. Question on notice while I'm answering. Ted Davies, hello from Reflections on 3MBS, contacted me a while ago and said, would you like to come on Reflections and could you choose five pieces of music? I said, oh, Ted, I'm in heaven. <laughs> so, of course, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. And there's a bit of a snob factor thing, you know, sitting on your shoulder is the little voice that says, yep. 
you should really choose something significant, serious, and show that you have the gravitas and musical knowledge of, um, you know, someone. Um, so anyway, I just I went with my heart. I went I went with songs that have meant a bit to me. And in fact, the first one is not so much a song as a piece of music. So J.S. Bach, his Brandenburg Concertos have got me through a lot of um, difficult tasks during my career. I find that if I have Bach on, I write better. And actually, psychologists say that the rhythm of Bach is very good for your concentration. So I chose one of the Brandenburg Concertos, not one in the minor scale, because they're, they're very sad and mortal, and I think it might have been the G major, can't remember. Joni Mitchell's Big Yellow Taxi, Caro. Mm-hmm. First woman um, performance artist in rock and roll that I've really started to take note of. Master's Apprentices, Because I Love You. Beautiful. Uh, Bill Withers, Lovely Day, because I sing that with the grandchildren. And then I had the song that, um, when I die, I want this played at my service. And it's George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. Beautiful. I know. That's an interesting mix, isn't it? It's a very good mix. It'd Ted, be so difficult. Ted Ted was interested in it. He was interested in the Master's Apprentices. But anyway, I explained why I chose that. What would you choose? Well, I did this once um, on 3AW um, with Bruce and Phil, I think. I think it was with Bruce and Phil. <laughs> oh, what a great show that was. And it was only three. And I chose um, – I, cho- I remember the ones I chose and I chose them. I do love all the songs, but I wanted it to be sort of relevant to – my job, you know, radio, newspapers, etc. So I did my Joni Mitchell one was You Turn Me On, I'm a Radio. And it's not my favourite Joni Mitchell song, but it's one of my top ten. Well, it's a great song. So I did that. Um, every um, uh, Talk of the Town by Chrissy <laughs> Hind and the Pretenders. I love that song. Yeah. I love, I love that, that song. song. It's so that song it's years. so romantic. And the song I want at my funeral, and I think Brendan does too, is... Um, Every Day I Write the Book by Elvis Costello, oh. one of my favourite songs in the absolute. Because, you know, every day, you know, that's pretty much what I do. I'm never going to write a book, but every day I write the book. And that's a beautiful love song as well. Great. Good um, choices. Um, Caro, who sh- should you have to pay to sit with Father Christmas? No. Who who pays? If you go to David Jones, you do. Miss Jane knows all about it. She's all over this. Admire. If you want the special photos, you know, that are not taken by you. If your kids aren't screaming saying, I'm terrified. If you want the professional photographer job and you want to buy a set of three or four, Maya would charge you a sum of money under 100 bucks, over 20 bucks. I mean, I think it starts at 20 or 30. But if you want to go to Maya and sit with Santa and take your own photos on your mobile phone, that's fine. You don't, it's free, as it should be. David Jones, they're charging. Oh, you actually have to pay to sit with Santa. Haven't they, haven't they seen Miracle on 34th Street? Not good enough. Corrie, should you have to pay for bad taste civic Christmas decorations? No, you should not. Gee, there's some shockers this year. There's some shockers, Caro. And when I had a bookshop, the people from the council used to come around and say, oh, uh, would you like to have our stickers and our, our things? They're part of your rates. You may as well have them. Not on your Nelly. Are you kidding? They're ugly as. I um I don't know whether this is permanent or not, Cara, but there's on the footbridge that crosses the Yarra from South Bank to Flinders Station, Flinders Street Station, the footbridge, which could be a great opportunity to do something with fairy lights or something wonderful, is um covered in this red, bright red, fire engine red and junior blue sign that says Merry Christmas. Uh, nobody seems to have taken taken into account the 
Victorian build, beautiful grace of the Victorian building, which is the Flinders Street Station. The, the, the Yarra either side at that point in the river has is lined with green trees. I think they're plane trees. This thing sticks out like a baboon's bottom. I don't know whether it's temporary and lights are coming on or it's there. It's uh, does anybody Has anybody else seen it? Anyway, if you were part of um, the Melbourne CBD Ratepayers Association, you'd be pretty cross with... <laughs> That. One that I drive past a lot is in the Rockley Gardens on Turek Road. And I, is it just me? It used to be enormous. This year it's this piddling little thing. Oh, the tree. The yeah. tree there opposite the library. It's pretty. It's a pretty tree, but it's probably only... They're downsizing. Well, it's probably only about three or four metres. It used to be massive. I don't know why What? Why did they make the tree smaller. Anyway, good point. Um, Carol, an amazing fact, please. Well, it's election-based and it's an historic amazing fact to do with Victorian politics. Now, you you probably have seen that Louise Staley is likely to lose her, has probably lost her upper house seat and is now being mooted to be, uh, I think, the state president of the Liberal Party. Boy, do they need some new talent there. Um, in the last election, she won, she won her seat on the upper in the upper house, the Legislative Council, by 15 votes. 15. Wowza. Now... I was talking um, about this the other day and it was I was reminded of the 1985 election when the Legislative Council, um, I think, consisted of 44 members and there was a dead heat. Now, this happened um, in the March... The election was held on March 2 um, and it happened after preferences from the Australian Democrats, remember them, were handed out. The Labor candidate was Bob Ives. The Liberal candidate was Rosemary Varty. They each received 54,821 votes. But what happened is the most interesting thing. Um, the returning officer, Kathleen Leonard, was required to you know, make a casting vote and she pulled the result out of a hat. So it went to and um, and she did it by drawing a name from the ballot box. Bob Ives from Labor won. Now, is that um, an, is that an, shouldn't they just go back and have another? It was the vote? most sensational electoral finish in you know Gosh. Victorian history. And everybody, that's why your vote matters. But there was a complaint, and um, it, they basically did a recount, and this was a legitimate recount, and they found that the um, election was void. 44 votes have been incorrectly excluded from the count. The court ordered a by-election, which was won convincingly by Rosemary Varty. Oh, really? So the Libs got back in. But in the two months or three months between the time when Bob Ives was still there and John Kane was Premier, gave him the balance of power in the upper house. And in those two months, two of them... Bigger incredible moments, really, in Victorian history. Um, the Occupational Health and Safety Act was introduced and the Work Cover Act was introduced wow. because he had that balance of power in the upper house. And he had to get it through. Before Bob Ives was kicked out after his name was drawn out of a, well, a ballot box, but a hat. That's a really good... I, I don't remember that at all. An amazing fact, Corrie. That is an amazing fact. That's it, why we call that segment that. And that's why we got those two... I mean, Oc Health and Safety Act and Work Cover... I mean, they're now just, you know, part of the vernacular. Anyway, John Cain, um, you know, as you know, as you know my views about John Cain, he is the reason I believe in affirmative action and quotas because if it wasn't for him, we still wouldn't be able to allow, be allowed to be MCC members or cross the blue line at Flemington. He was a hero. Anyway, join us at the live event. You're going to hear a bit more about that in a moment. Corrie, that was wonderful to see you again. Don't shoot the messenger. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And we invite you to join us at our live event. Thanks to Red Energy on Wednesday, the 14th of December at quarter past 10 to watch us record a podcast and have morning tea with Caro and Corrie. Tickets are limited. You'll find the booking link in the show notes. That's Wednesday, the 14th of December. Come and have a morning tea with Caro and Corrie. Thanks to Red Energy, 100% Australian electricity and gas.